Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Keenon, the show that's in the business, I think, of, um, of blowing up mythologies and getting us to rethink the nature of things. Uh, and one of the things that I've been encouraging or my guests have been encouraging you to, to rethink are the foundations of Western civilization. Um, we know the old story that the West arose in classical Greece and was somehow better, wiser, fairer, more tolerant than the rest of the world. Uh, and that's the story of the West. Well, we know really that it isn't the story of the West. And many of our guests recently have been reminding, of, reminding us of this. Uh, the Harvard uh, academic Joe Henrik was on the show recently. His best-selling book, The Weirdest People in the World, reminds us that the West became peculiar because of some changes in terms of policy on marriage in the Roman Catholic Church in the 11th century. Um, the British scholar Kehinde Andrews was on the show recently, also suggesting that the whole Western enterprise was rooted and remains rooted in racism and colonialism. And even relatively conservative Orthodox writers like Simon Winchester in his new book, Land, exposes the the, the, the Lockean assumption about land and hard work being the foundations of our prosperity. Uh, on top of land then and racism and culture, uh, one of the other chestnuts ready to be exploded is democracy. And my guest today, David Stasevage, uh, has a new book out, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, A Global History from Antiquity to Today, which suggests that the conventional narrative of democracy, that it went from classical Greece to 17th and 18th century Western Europe, particularly the United Kingdom and the United States, is itself a myth. Uh, David, are you another smasher of icons? Are you reminding us that all these old stories about Western superiority and this intimate connection between classical antiquity and modernity are based on stories? Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm a smasher of icons, but what, what I would like to do is to, to get people to think of the story of democracy as being less like one where a torch is passed on from one Western civilization to the next and to, to think about how there's a much broader global evidence about democratic forms of rule existing and arising independently in a whole host of human societies over over thousands of years. And so um, obviously not going to want to uh, say anything negative uh, about uh, certain uh, parts of the Western tradition, which I think have been- I want negative, David. I want you to smash icons. That's why you had you on. If, if you're not gonna smash any icons, we'll have to take you off the air. Oh, I see, okay. Well. No, so the, this idea that it was invented in only one place at one time, I just think is completely wrong. Uh, and Good, well that's, a, and, and you remind us of that at the beginning of the book. You have this wonderful opening paragraph. You write, we are taught that Europeans invented democracy. We learn that it was invented by the Greeks who gave us the word itself. And we hear also that democracy in Greece 
died out after about as much time as the American Republic had existed. You're suggesting, though, that isn't true, aren't you? No, exactly. The Greeks gave us the word, which everyone now uses today when they want to think of, of democracy, uh, but they didn't invent the practice because the, the Greeks had an early form of democracy that was remarkable in many ways. But there were other societies that existed prior to them, and there were other societies on other continents that developed systems of collective rule through councils and assemblies independently without actually ever learning anything about the classical tradition. And so I think that's really the key reason why we shouldn't be running around saying that this is, this is, as we said, something that was invented in one place and one time that then diffused everywhere else. It was more of a general human invention. Yeah, and uh, reading your book actually does remind me of, of, of Kahindi Andrews' The New Age of Empire, not because you're as anti-colonial and anti-Western as him, but you also seem to suggest that what um, the colonialists found in North America and in what we call now Latin America, uh, was actually in many ways more advanced. You, you, you suggest that in North America, the French Jesuit ministries uh, found uh, the territory of the people they called the Huron, and they found democracy. It's, it's, it's a really um, bracing uh, observation that you make in your book. You know, the, the obvious, uh, the, the, the standard narrative is American, uh, North America, uh, Europeans came to North America and found savages. You reverse that narrative, don't you? No, that's exactly right. I mean, there may have been different standards in terms of technology. And what we certainly know is that uh, Europeans had firearms, whereas the indigenous inhabitants of North America, who they conquered, did not. Uh, but in terms of styles of governance, if you're talking about uh, the Huron who called themselves the Wendats, then exactly these French Jesuit missionaries decided or discovered this, this remarkable system of governance of councils, of sort of village councils, tribal councils, confederation council that, that, that worked uh, in a way that they thought represented the French, uh, resembled the French Estates General, but of course the Estates General hadn't been called since 1614, and this is, you know, some decades later that they're writing. So, and you know, the same follows for Hernan Cortes when he uh, conquered this area adjacent to the Aztec Empire called Tlaxcala, and he said it resembled more of a European city-state with no central ruler and a collective form of governance. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, you, 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 that was, again, particularly uh, bracing. Uh, Cortes suggested that he found a system of government like Venice or Genoa or Pisa, but no supreme ruler. So in, in many ways, both what Cortes and the North American missionaries found were political systems that were at least equal in terms of democracy, if not more advanced than, um, than the ones that they were importing in a violent way. Yeah, I hesitate to, to, to use the word advanced, but they were certainly more democratic. So if you're a Democrat with a small d, yeah. Uh, do you like that word? Uh, do you like that word, uh, David? Advanced, or is that a Western word? Should we should we put that word away? Advanced is it meaningless and in some senses dangerous? Well, it is certainly the anthropologists have avoided the term for some long time, and I think one of the problems there are multiple problems about the the word advanced, uh, the most obvious of which is is denigrating other peoples. But the other the other problem with it is sometimes it can lend itself to a view that societies follow this sort of unilinear evolution over time and that there aren't multiple different paths. Uh, and in fact, there the are. The weak version paths. of history, the, 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 the typically Western-centric notion of progress along some sort of 
unilinear uh, narrative. You, you seem to suggest that democracy is rooted in three things which are in, intrinsic to society. You say, first of all, um, that rulers need the consent of the people. Secondly, you suggest uh, that democracy happens when rulers need to know more about the people. And thirdly, um, rulers need more revenue, the old story. So this is a, a perpetual feature of human society, isn't it? I, I believe so. And those are a really specific set of conditions that allowed early forms of democracy to, to, to flourish. And the, you know, the great irony of it, and this comes back to the question of using the word advanced or not, is that in many cases, the progress of technology actually led to the disappearance of these early forms of democracy, precisely because rulers had easier ways of monitoring what their citizens were doing or producing and tracking that and writing it down and had less need for sort of more collective forms of, of rule of the sort that existed precisely in places like among the Huron or among uh, the Black Stalins or elsewhere where early democracy prevailed. Um, David, I, I do another show called How to Fix Democracy, um, focusing on this issue. And one of our recent guests was the Governor General of Canada, Adrian Clarkson, who spoke to me about the importance of learning from Indigenous people. Do you think, if anything, we can learn about fixing our modern democracy from the practices of the Indigenous people, whether it's the Huron or, or other Indigenous peoples of North or, or Central or Latin America? Oh, I, I, I definitely would agree with that statement and what the governor general said. Let me just give you one example. So the United States today is obviously a very polarized society. It's almost like we've become ever more tribal, uh, split into two tribes. And one of the aspects of that polarization is that it seems to involve less and less contact or less or less interaction between people of our two opposing tribes. And one of the things that we could do is go back in history and learn from earlier political experiments that seem to try to mitigate polarization. This happened in ancient Athens, but I'm not going to talk about the Athenian example as important as it was, because the Huron uh, in, you know, in, and the Iroquois actually evolved an alternative and very similar system uh, that dealt with polarization. They were divided into tribes, but they invented a system of clans. So you could be a member of the same clan as someone from a different tribe, or you could be the member of the same clan uh, with someone from a different village within your own tribe or not. And that was a system of affiliations that cross-cut potential tribal divisions and led to less, we would hope, less polarization and, and, and segmentation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do something exactly like that, but there are ways in which more generally we could learn uh, from indigenous practices of, uh, practices of governance that we haven't been so familiar with. Your uh, your suggestion that we didn't inherit democracy from classical antiquity, or at least if we did, it was no different from many other systems, uh, you underline in the book, um, you say the simple notion that Europeans had democracy because of the classical tradition fails to convince. How should that... Um, how should that trigger a rethink of the, the so-called classical uh, tradition itself? Uh, you teach politics at NYU. That's your day job. Do we need to rethink this whole idea of classical civilization, David? Well, I think we need to take um, 
what is good from the classical tradition and what we can learn from it. Because you do have an exceptionally large number of writers and thinkers who wrote about issues of how societies should govern themselves and what the best form of government was. And for various reasons, um, we know that that classical tradition has been preserved in the way that the writings of a lot of other uh, societies or oral traditions of other societies, perhaps because they died off or were, uh, you know, as a result of European colonization or conquest, were not preserved in the same way. So it's still a very useful thing to do, but it's something that has to be used with care to not put it on a pedestal and set it above uh, other, other traditions, which may actually have a, a great deal to offer. It's just that we don't know them quite as well and we don't have quite as much information about them. So uh, I know you're the Dean of the Social Sciences at NYU, David. You're going to shut down the classical departments? No more Latin or Greek? Well, no, 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 absolutely not. I'm a great fan of the classics. And actually, the classics are <laughs> under the Dean of the Humanities, not the Dean of the Social Sciences. So, okay, but, well, you're going to give the, 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 the scholars of Greek and, Greek and Latin uh, and, and Roman civilization the chills watching this. You're not just, though, David... Um, uh, a scholar of, 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 of ancient democracy, also of modern democracy. And you suggest that even uh, in the last 50 years, uh, our concept of modern democracy is way too Western-centric. You talk about the post-1989 world and suggest that many of the developments of democracy in Africa and in the non-Western world aren't a consequence of the fall of the wall, that we need to rethink the, the supposed Western-centric nature of democracy. Is the fall of the wall, is that in some ways also a distraction in terms of making sense of democracy in the contemporary age? Well, I wouldn't call it a distraction, but it led to uh, some mistaken impressions in, in two important ways. Uh, one of these, the first of was that there was this growing sense that democracy of the Western sort could and should be exported everywhere and would become the dominant form of governance for anyone who would listen. And I think what, what accompanied part of that was the, the, the sort of lack of attention to the fact that before they were colonized, uh, many societies elsewhere had their own indigenous forms of democracy, yet uh, colonizers didn't really pay much uh, attention to them. And I think the second problem with the, the emphasis on the fall of the Berlin Wall is a little bit related to the expectations of what would have uh, happened after that. So if you, some people are lamenting the fact today that only about half of the human population um, is governed democratically, depending upon what sort of measure you'd like to use that political scientists develop. That's still more people, more a greater fraction of the human population than at any time in the last 200 years. So I think there's been, if you're a Democrat, again, small d, there's been a tremendous amount of progress. And you remind us in your book of certain countries like Ghana, which one never would have expected to become democratic in 1989, has done and has done with or without probably the fall of the wall. Let's talk a little bit, David, about America, uh, because everyone is thinking about the future of democracy in America today. Uh, you remind us that there was nothing intrinsic or natural about democracy in America and that Madison understood, one of the founders, if not the father of American democracy, that the only way it would survive in America is through newspapers and civic education. How worried are you about democracy in America today in April 2021? I'm worried, and I think one of the things we need to do is go back to maybe some of those lessons from the early republic and, and recognize that in such a large territory, a uh, large country, that the idea 
of modern democracy is not something we should take for granted because most people participate politically only when they vote every so year, every um, few years. And they've lost in many cases, I think, a sort of feeling of any deeper connection with, with government. And that's a, it's, it's a real problem. And so it's, uh, that doesn't mean that I have a solution but at least I think what, what I've been suggesting is well, that... Well, you do have a solution, David. In a, in, a, in a CNN piece recently, you suggested that we need, and I'm quoting you here, invest anew in civic education. What exactly is civic education? And how can that, can, how can that strengthen democracy in America? Yeah, I talked about that, and I think that's something we could do. And civic education is something, learning about government, learning about what are the basic principles of our constitution, uh, having a shared narrative about what the, the country is about and what democratic participation uh, involves, because ultimately, you know, the, the, coming back to the original Greek definition of the term, demokratia just means that the people have power. And if the people are going to exercise, first of all, the people have to want to exercise power and have to learn about it. Uh, and it, if they don't, then that's a problem. So the thing about civic education, though, I think it's very important, but you have to remember that it's not going to be an instant solution because civic education is primarily going to affect people who are young, uh, who are in school, who are learning ideas about government. And so maybe 20, 25 years down the road, if you had a big program for civic, civic education, that could change attitudes. But it's not going to do anything for those adults who are already firmly set in their views and probably more resistant uh, to going back and thinking about civic education. Uh, David, the se my, my second series of How to Fix Democracy focused on the relationship between capitalism and democracy. And, and a lot of the people we talked to were worried that growing inequality between rich and poor would undermine or was undermining democracy in the West, particularly in America. Your last book before this one was called Taxing the Rich, A History of Fiscal Fairness in the United States and, and Europe. Is there a need, do you think? And this is a very... Um, uh, obviously, a very uh, hot subject uh, in Biden's America. Is there a need to tax the rich in order to protect democracy itself? Well, the, the ironic thing, and this is something that uh, I try to suggest in Decline and Rise, is that democracy seems to survive even in the face of rampant inequality in many cases. Uh, and at the same time, democracy does not have an automatic effect on reducing inequality. That doesn't mean that's a good thing, but I think that's a fact. And so if you go back to the 19th century when rich elites in Western Europe were fearful of universal suffrage uh, and the fact that this might result in great expropriation of their wealth, nothing of this sort uh, happened, uh, apart from uh, these interludes of very high it, Should this make us feel better or worse about democracy? I wasn't quite sure whether it's something that should cheer me out or, or cheer me up or make us more depressed. I think you should do both at the same time. It means that it's robust to inequality, but if you're worried about inequality, then that's a very disappointing thing because it's only under specific conditions that democracy is actually going to be able to do something about inequality. Now, it's possible that the, you know, the pandemic currently and the, all the new inequalities that it is, but new inequalities and existing inequalities that it is reinforced will lead to pressures in some countries for greater taxation of the rich. Uh, New York State's legislature just passed a bill in that direction. In the United Kingdom, there have been calls for a one-off wealth tax. So I think something like that could happen. Um, but again, it's these opening moments like that of crisis that allow for democratic politics to allow for uh, greater taxation of the rich. Usually democracy on its own doesn't get you that outcome. Uh, David, you wrote a piece recently for CNN suggesting that COVID-19 has exposed the weakness of America's federal government. 
is the strength of government, um, does it speak of the strength or weakness of democracy? Do we need strong state, strong government, a strong federal bureaucracy and administration to protect democracy or does it undermine it? I mean, it, it, it risks undermining it uh, if it's misused and there's too much executive power that's unchecked. But of course we need, and one of the points I made in that piece was it would have been useful to have a more coherent federal government uh, to do things like make sure that nurses didn't have to wear garbage bags for, for PPE equipment, which they were doing in New York City. Although that has nothing to do with democracy. You can have nurses with garbage bags on their feet and still have a strong democracy, can't you? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. But I'm just saying if you had a stronger federal government, that could have got you that or a more coherent federal government that could have got you that. So I think, you know, the state uh, early democracies existed in the, in the as an alternative to having a state bureaucracy. Today, we have state bureaucracies and they're very they do a lot of very useful things for us. Uh, we just need to make sure that executive power uh, and controlling the bureaucracy doesn't get out of hand. Your book is quite universal in scope. You have a chapter on China and a chapter in the Islamic world. Um, your section both on, on the Middle East and on China seems to suggest that a strong state both in the Middle East and in China has undermined democracy. We're all too familiar on this show uh, with, for example, the growth of China's surveillance state. We had Kai Strittmatter on the show recently. And we also had Kim Khatas, who wrote Black Wave about the crisis of democracy, both uh, in the Sunni and Shiite world. What, why, why is there a, a paucity, a crisis, a scarcity of democracy, both in China and in the Middle East or in the Muslim world? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, on, it's, it's, it's really the Europe, China in particular, but the Middle East also is, is that the European model of development flipped on its head, whereas the European model of development, uh, particularly after the fall of Rome, was to have very weak st central states. Uh, European monarchs had, had great titles and claimed to do great things, but they had nothing in the way of a modern bureaucracy or even a pre-modern bureaucracy until very, very late in the game. What they did have is assemblies and parliaments and councils that they called to rule together uh, with members of the citizenry, elite members of the citizenry. And they did that because they needed to. They had no way of ruling on their own via subordinates. Whereas in China, you do get the development of a bureaucratic state from much, much earlier. And there's no real initial tradition of early democratic governance. And so once that state exists, it's very hard to then impose democracy because rulers didn't need their people to rule jointly with them in the same way. You're cautiously optimistic about the future. You wrote a really nice piece, I thought, in Noema magazine, Ancient Democracy for an Online World, in which you suggest that we might be able to uh, recreate or uh, reinvent some of the traditional democracy in, in the digital world. How can digital stimulate democracy, David? Well, it can stimulate it and it can hurt it. I think one of the questions that is out there is it obviously it offers people uh, a lower cost form of participation um, compared to what might exist in the absence of digital. And if we think that there's a gap in terms of participation, that people would like to feel more connected, uh, then perhaps that's a route forward. Now, I think the, the question that, that, that that's unresolved is whether people feel satisfied with digital participation in the same way 
that they would with face-to-face -face participation. Early democracy in other societies was fundamentally a face-to-face -face affair. And it may be that there's something just about actual human presence and communication in a direct form like that that can't be fully replicated online, or at least not satisfactorily. What do you think, uh, David, of uh, citizen assemblies, which take the idea of the, the, the lottery system from antiquity and uh, recreate them in the 21st century? The Irish have tried this. It's getting a lot of good press. That's physical rather than online, or at least combines the analog and the digital in a, in a, in a creative way. Yeah, I think they're a very interesting innovation. Uh, I don't know whether they'll solve our problems, but it, we're at a moment where it's useful to try anything probably to see what might help. Um, uh, Aileen, Land Aileen uh, Landemore at, at Yale has just written in a wonderful book called Open Democracy that talks about uh, reforms of this sort. Uh, I, I think they're a useful experiment for the moment to think about whether people feel satisfied with them uh, and what sort of policy proposals they produce. Uh, it, but we're probably far away from actually anyone being willing to agree that you should actually substitute some randomly generated assembly like that uh, for a more traditional legislature where, where, where uh, individuals are elected. Uh, David, what, how should Americans think about themselves and their own democracy in the world? In my How to Fix Democracy show, uh, I had the congressman uh, Tom Malinowski on the show who argues that America should pioneer a, a global conference, a Biden conference on democracy. He's in favor of that. Some people suggest that America has nothing to be proud of for its democracy and shouldn't be doing anything uh, so hubristic. Uh, should Americans think of themselves as leaders in global democracy or do they need to lick their wounds, the wounds of the Trump age and, and rebuild their own democracy? Well, Americans at times have certainly been leaders. If you think about the inspiration that the establishment of uh, democracy for free white males uh, uh, caused in, uh, in in Europe uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But, uh, but, uh, but I think uh, if we're going to have something like a conference on democracy or some discussion like that, it's possible for the U.S. to coordinate a discussion just because we're a large democracy. But uh, we really have to recognize that that can't be done in a way that involves any sort of lecturing, precisely because American democracy, uh, first of all, has been so flawed from the start. If you think of that, about the fact that African-Americans couldn't even vote until 1965, apart from a brief hiatus under reconstruction, uh, and that there are other elements of democracy that emerged elsewhere in the world uh, that, that, that where people have really done this on their own, and it wasn't because Americans told them how to do it, uh, that, that they succeeded in establishing a stable democracy. So maybe sort of an alliance or a league of democracies or a confederation or a talking shop about democracy and where one can exchange ideas would, would be the best idea, but not one where the U.S. presents itself as a model. David, you, you, in the book, um, uh, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, in your chapter on America, you remind us of the history of slavery and the profound hypocrisy of supposedly inventing democracy in a system of slavery. Uh, you mentioned how America exported the ideal of democracy for men to the rest of the world. Haven't mentioned women. We had Margaret Atwood on my How to Fix Democracy show recently, of course, the author amongst many bestsellers of The Handmaiden's Tale. What about women and democracy and gender? What role has it and should it play in democracy? 
Um, what can we indeed learn from you, the, the, the societies that you discover actually did pioneer democracy, the Hurons or the other peoples of, of Central America? Well, yeah, that, that, you know, it's an interesting point that when you go back, not just to the U.S., but say the prime classical example of democracy, the Athenian democracy, uh, apart from the fact that the Athenians had a, a large number of slaves, it's also the case that in Athens, women had absolutely no political role whatsoever. Uh, whereas if you talk about the Huron or the Iroquois or a lot of other indigenous groups, their examples uh, of women uh, having political power and playing a political role. So that, that to me, is it, that doesn't tell us exactly what we should do, apart from obviously we want to follow the example of giving everybody equal participation in politics. But there are other societies that seem to have done better on that from a far earlier stage than we have. Does it worry you, David? Some conservatives are worried, some genuine conservatives rather than just rabble-rousers worry that uh, the emergence of identity politics of people thinking of themselves as women or African-Americans or Asian-Americans um, undermines democracy? Or can we have a multicultural democracy which is functional, where we can talk to one another and govern one another in the 21st century? Oh, I think we can have it. And I don't think, uh, you know, the idea that we could simply ignore these differences or these identities and pretend that everybody is the same uh, just cuts against reality. And I think the better thing is to, to have a, a very vibrant democracy with lots of people with lots of different identities um, and some of those identities being shared and cross-cutting in the, in the way that I spoke about earlier. Well, there you have it. David Stasevages, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, a really powerful and a iconoclastic uh, read in terms of uh, uh, exploding some of the, the myths uh, of, 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 of the conventional notion of democracy. Uh, David, congratulations on the book. What else? I know you're in uh, your, your uh, home in, uh, in New York City uh, in these strange times in April 2021. What else should people be reading while we're still all stuck inside? Well, I would like to make a, uh, an argument for the, this book that I've just pulled off my table here uh, by Hélène Londemore, uh, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. Uh, it's a book I've been delving into that I find fascinating and has uh, been published uh, by Princeton and looks at precisely these ideas of citizen juries, citizen assemblies, and how they might be uh, an, a new experiment in a new form of democracy. Well, David, with your help, we're going to get Helen on, Helene on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure and honor to talk to you. Uh, your book is as coherent as your speech. Congratulations. And we will look forward to having you on the show in the not-too-distant future. Keep well. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Andrew.